Hello and GM everyone, this is Martin Hughes speaking. Excited for another episode where I get to cover all things Web3. I'm going to keep my intro short as I want to dive right into the convo with our guest of today's show, Dollar. Having a background in advertising, Dollar has helped multiple projects with community management, business strategy, marketing, and more. He is an experimenter at heart, a curious mind in the Web3 space, constantly questioning popular opinions, standards of practice, and generalities, bringing light to the fact that most of the truth is found in the gray. His new project, Provenance, is a curated membership built on preeminent conversation, creativity, and contribution, a community of hand-selected participants who share interest in Web3 and appreciation for collecting and innovation. The member policy is simple, add value, expect none in return. We're going to cover a lot of ground on today's episode from AI to community building. We also talk POAPs, marketplaces, provenance, and much more. I hope you get to enjoy this talk as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, here's my convo with Dollar. Dollar, it's great to have you on the show, man. Man, it's a pleasure. I'm uh, happy to be here with you. Yeah, as we talked about prior to this uh, recording, I think we've uh, connected a couple of months back. Could have been even a year. Were you at the? Were you there at the beginning of Proof? Yeah, Proof. I was. Uh, I think I was maybe a couple of days late. I bought in at somewhere around three ETH. Okay, not bad. Yeah, early enough. I, I can't complain about that. Um, I want to kick off this convo with a subject that is pretty much top of mind at the moment, and uh, that is AI. Have you played around at all with like you know programs such as ChatGPT and and Midjourney? Yeah, look, I've spent some time on it. Um, it. It's super interesting, right? And I think that now that everybody's got access to these tools, you know, including me, who is fairly novice around the tech behind it, it really kind of illustrates uh, and illuminates how far along we are. And I think people are starting to realize that, man, this, this tech is going to start doing things and replacing people. So it's almost been a little bit sobering, you know, as people, for, for the mass market, I guess, as people are playing with like that chat, you know, application to realize like these things are, are, are making significant progress. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Um, so, I mean, in real life, I own a marketing agency. And one of the things that we do as well is like copywriting. And when I, when I saw ChatGPT, I was like, wow, that's crazy. It can literally, you can, you can ask AI to generate an article for you about pretty much anything and it'll do a pretty decent job at it. Like it gives you a really good structure. Yeah, I think what's interesting because you know I've got a background in advertising as well is you know as a marketer you would want to sort of split test content. I mean, you might write something really solid, uh, but then you can give it to an AI protocol and sort of ask it to write you know twenty five variations, um, and then you've got a you know more data, more content to use. So I think it can enable um, and sort of make everybody more productive. And I think also for a lot of different jobs and specialties, it could just replace. So I think for people to integrate is probably a great idea as early as possible. Right. Technology is not moving backwards. Um, what do you think about how that will impact artists uh, as well? Obviously, like there's the marketing part where I feel sometimes there's a lot of tasks we don't necessarily want to do again and again. For, so for example, like copywriting just for the sake of producing content and having a, a blog that's kept active. But uh, in, in the case of an artist, like, you know, I've, played around with mid journey as well. And it's pretty wild what it can do. Um, and my, my stance on it is like, I just feel like it's going to augment whatever the artists are already doing and, and serve as inspiration for quick 
sketchups or as you were saying, producing a lot of variations in a short amount of time. And that can kind of guide the artists into whatever visuals they prefer. Do you have anything to add in terms of like how that's going to impact artists in general? I think, you know, artists will be as affected as anybody else. I mean, you're going to have an opportunity to either integrate with or be replaced by. Um, In general, I would say that, you know, most of the content on the internet in 10 years will probably be machine generated. So um, I'm sure there'll become categories of AI art. I'm sure that artists will use it. It's, It's really hard to tell, you know, where we'll end up with it. I think your thought of like, you know, using it to experiment is a great idea. And that's an example of integrating it, right? But yeah, it's hard to say. I think a lot of content that we see will be computer generated. And I think the only concern I have, uh, although it may be minor, is, you know, that people will use AI, basically just write a prompt and then sort of say, hey, look, I I created this as if it was sort of man-made, so to speak. But outside of that, I think, you know, there'll be a cross-section, people using it, people not using it. Um, I just hope that the lines don't get too blurred. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a way to, I guess, like authenticate that to see if it was really man-made or, you know, was it AI? Because I, as you were saying, I I think as everyone gets access to the same technology, it's almost like we'll become desensitized to this kind of level of art. Because I'm seeing what stuff that MidJourney can, the output that that program can have, and it's pretty mind-boggling. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, the moment everybody got an iPhone or, uh, you know, a Samsung, like any smartphone now can take a very nice picture. So taking nice pictures is not that uncommon anymore. So I'm guessing it's going to be the same thing with like digital art. I think that's an interesting point, right? I would say that society, like people in general are, are kind of going to be equally as intelligent as the most available AI tool, right? So it's democratizing intelligence in a way that you sort of, and creativity for that matter, that you sort of couldn't um, democratize before. That was much more personal. And now as long as these tools are highly accessible, kind of that um, advantage that somebody may have is canceled out and you're all sort of playing from the same uh, field. So um, yeah, there's pros and cons for sure. Yeah, and I feel like there's gonna be more, it's gonna enable a lot of more people that were maybe not so artistically gifted in terms of drawing or painting, but were really great storytellers, for example. I could see AI enabling these these storytellers or these uh, writers that can have an amazing narrative, but have no way to actually like put it into visuals. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that... Um I think that using tools for those purposes is an awesome thing. You know, some people may want to, uh, who knows, they want to write a storybook and couldn't afford an artist or they want to drive that themselves. I mean, there's certainly a lot of like positive um, outcomes and applications for this stuff. And I think that um, certainly that would be one of them. And, you know, I think it's just a, for a lot of people, it's just a lot of fun. Like you know, if you wanted something creative made previously, like you had to hire someone or you had to buy it. But, you know, maybe you've got your own creative vision. You want to play with something um, that you sort of have in your head and you can kind of materialize materialize that at a, at a you know, cost of about zero now. So I think it um, certainly can be empowering. You're quite active overall in space. Do you do this full-time? Yeah, I, I would describe Web3 as a full-time um, at this stage. I mean, I've got a digital strategy firm which kind of has turned its full focus to this space, which is why you know, I, I say full-time. So yeah, for the most part, this is what I do um, day-to-day. And can you tell us a bit more about that background, like with that digital agency? So you're basically helping projects marketing. Uh, do you do consulting? Yeah, so um, that's a 
that firm only deals with digital products. So before, you know, NFTs or anything like that, we were sort of doing, you know, information products, um, you know, anything that's kind of packaged and sold entirely digitally. Um, and, you know, that was everything from sort of product strategy through to marketing consulting. I'm sure there's some crossover with what you do. Um, but then, of course, as, you know, NFTs sort of gone bonkers and, you know, we were watching projects, um, you know, people who didn't have uh, experience in, in community management or, or marketing or, or even sort of putting together a business plan and general strategy, we sort of saw an opportunity to come in and help, you know, navigate those waters for certain projects. And it was you know, lucrative enough to pivot majority of the business in that direction. Um, and so that's what we did really for the last sort of 18 or so months. Yeah, I do. Um, I do see a lot of crossover there. And it's interesting because as I've evolved in the space, I, I've seen you're one of the recurring people that I see over and over again, being active in Discord servers and, you know, just having interesting thoughts uh, in general that I actually really enjoyed reading. Uh, that's why you know, I wanted to have you on the show as well. There, there's one of those tweets that you put out, which I thought was very insightful. And I related a lot too, because I, I just found it to be extremely true in that short period of time I was in the space. And the tweet goes, um, there's an extremely high concentration of talent in the Web3 space. I've made more valuable connections in the past 12 months than I have over the past 12 years. And I spend between one and two hours every day participating in chats and hosting calls with members. I feel like it's such an important part of any biz dev that you want to do, whether it's in real life or Web3. And um, you can talk about this more, but like, I just found my experience to be exactly the same. Like people are not, they're, they're within, within reach. If you just like take the first step and actually DM people and, and try to connect on a deeper level. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the, the kind words, but you know, I, everybody is very accessible. I think that being in web three every day, it might feel, you know, vast, but it's honestly quite small relative to any other industry. And, you know, I would call web three in general, still a bleeding edge and the reason, you know, why there's so many talented people here is because it's a bleeding edge. I mean, you attract sort of two kinds of people. And I think, you know, one has kind of fizzled out and that's the sort of uh, profiteering uh, opportunist uh, that was only there for, you know, the craziness. And as that sort of faded away, you're left with the people who are thinking like, what can we really build or what's um, really possible with the tech? And there's a lot of really uh, talented and capable people. And, and it's not just founders. I mean, you know, you've got, you know, among many of it, particularly the blue chip communities, like people who have just bought in to say like, I'm, I'm buying in, you know, not because I necessarily want the PFP or the access to whatever it is, but it's like, I just want to know what's going on. And these are people that are, um, willing to invest some money to remain at the bleeding edge. And, you know, I think these are some factors that contribute to, you know, so much talent in one place. And, and again, it, I think it is quite small. I mean, if you send a message over Discord or Twitter, you've got a pretty good chance of getting a response. And I try to make that part of my routine to not just sort of, you know, follow or be followed, uh, but to you know reach out. You know, you read an interesting bio that somebody's got, you know, somebody's working at this company or maybe they have a background in another company that's it's web two, but they've obviously got an interest here um, mm -hmm. that it's worth, you know, having that conversation and, and making that connection. Yeah. Thousand percent. And um, building on what you were saying, I think you've recently acquired a punk, right? I did. I did. I've been shopping for a long time. Finally, uh, finally bought. Congratulations. Um, question for you going on on this idea that sometimes you just join communities to see what's going on. And perhaps like it's not even about the PFP itself, but it's about the community that's there. 
What have you gained from being a part of the community? And uh, is it what you expected? You know, the punks community is interesting. I mean, maybe there are punks who will listen to this and be offended by the analysis. I, I think it's quite a fragmented group. There's like a bunch of different chats and initiatives that are going. It's not really, you know, a lot of projects have one discord and everybody's in that discord and that's where the, the discourse happens. But um, it's not the case with punks. So um, I'm in a couple of different chats, which I've found to be um, full of really interesting and clever people. Um, one of the big reasons, you know, for me buying a punk was just kind of the heritage of, I suppose, the collection. You know, I look at, in, in the same way that I look at sort of Chromie Squiggles uh, by Snowfro as an index of, you know, generative art, I kind of see punks as the index of, of, of PFPs. And you know, I've got a thesis around both of those categories. But for me, it was like, if you're going to own a PFP, you might as well have a, uh, well, all the one to have is a punk. So the, the group is really talented. There's a lot of clever people, diverse backgrounds and uh, professions, but um, it was just something I had to have. I totally agree with you. And I, I'm also working my way up to getting a punk. But the thing that sold me on getting a punk is actually what Gary Vee said in one of his podcasts. He was saying that like, you know, all the other projects, whether it's Bored Apes, whether it's a uh, Proof Moonbirds, whether it's, you know, Azuki, whatever PFP project you can think about, they all have to continue to deliver and perhaps innovate for the next, you know, five, 10 years, 20 years. But punks just hold their value just because of the historical significance. And I think that is such a, an interesting spot to be at. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've kind of made comments similar to this for, for months now, you know, that there's this unachievable expectation on the shoulders of founders. And, you know, some aren't really doing anything. And the founders who are sort of making an effort, you know, I... I can't say I would necessarily want to be them because they're in a position where they're trying to materialize some kind of return for holders that is almost impossible. You know, the, ex the expectations are just enormously high. And the, and the reason is simply because, you know, the floor price has got to such you know, meteoric levels. Mm. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily be because people were thinking uh, expressly about what the founders would deliver. It was more about, you know, effectively the bubble and the fact that you would buy it on Monday, you know, for 100,000 and sell it on Friday for 150. And that was kind of just the narrative that people were playing into. So now that people are holding on to expensive, uh, maybe valued at much less, maybe it's just very illiquid. Now they're looking at founders to say, hey, it's it's your turn to to make this worth it. And that's a challenging thing to meet. Do you find that to be true more in this market or because I've actually found it to be the opposite. And what I mean by this is that right now, like people, I guess are more are more forgiving of the fact that, you know, the floor price is not rising or like, you know, doubling every three days or five days. Maybe it's all, it also depends on when you buy in, you know, let's say you bought a Moonbird at uh, 35 ETH, you might have a very different opinion about where it's sitting right now. And maybe you're expecting more from the founders, but I find that, you know, if somebody just bought in now, it, it's just a way more down to earth, like realistic view of, or an especially valuation of where the project should be. Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with cost basis um, and different communities have sort of different vibes and sentiments. I, you know, have the unpopular belief, I suppose, that most people are here for financial gain. And so there is always going to be some expectation. It's just about how sort of reined in they are or are not. I think that what founders sort of let happen, which caused problems, was never putting a lid on speculation. Not that I blame them for this, but that, you know, people let these prices get out of control, knowing that they would never sort of be tangibly worth, you know, those things. If you're focused on utility, for example, I, I just think things ran a little rampant. But to answer your question, I think that if you've got a higher cost basis, 
you're certainly um, probably feeling a little bit more pressure and and much harder on the team versus if you've got a low cost basis and you're still in the green, then you're probably going to be a little bit more uh, easygoing. And how do you think uh, people can mitigate this, you know, overvaluation of their project? Because it seems like, let's say in a bear market, that would be a great thing to see people really getting into a project and driving a lot of volume to, to what you're building. What's the balance there? Because Obviously, during the bull market, it was shifting way too far in one in one direction, one extreme where everything was overvaluated. But maybe right now there's a lot of people that are working hard at projects and um, trying to get them off the ground, but they're just not getting any traction. So, you know, what's that balance between conveying what your project is about, but also not like uh, making crazy assumptions of of what you can actually deliver to the holders? Yeah, look. There's, there are many ways to answer this. And I think that the, the best answer is just for founders to actually do some innovation. Um, well, let me say something else. I mean, now that we're in a now that the bubble is kind of burst per se and, and people are starting to get a bit more realistic and sort of realize that they weren't using any appropriate measure of value, but, um, you know, that's going to help. So now people are going to be more skeptical and, and, you know, approach things with a little bit more reason and do a little bit more research. What worked during the peak of a bubble is not an example of good business. Um, I don't think, you know, copying and pasting the exact business model, collection size, collection style, and just sort of hoping that when you paste it with a different visual, you'll be able to raise millions of dollars and make a bunch of money off royalties is a innovative or thoughtful business model. That's a, you know, I would actually consider that a pretty niche business model if we're talking from a project perspective. Mm. Um, we haven't really seen anybody approach this as a more traditional business. We've ne- not really seen anybody innovate um, beyond that sort of 10K blueprint, 5K blueprint. So yeah, look, I think people need to innovate. I think the royalty thing is, you know, that's a discussion people hate to have, but I think for projects, again, they're tr- they want trade volume so they can you know bring in royalties, but I don't think you know projects should be collecting royalties. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, ways to approach this. Talking about projects and and innovating and founders in particular, you're also working on something, right? Like you're building something called provenance. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, you know, I want to be careful not to sort of say too much. I think that's, I suppose, I'm trying to practice what I preach in that I, I want to keep expectations as low as possible, and I don't want people to um, value it in any particular way at this stage. The core thesis of provenance is to bring together great people for a forever community in Web three. What that basically means, and I hate buzzwords like community, but my general thesis is that. Communities with a secondary market where the price goes up and down, you know, experience enormous turbulence around sentiment, member turnover, and it doesn't really feel like a community. It's sort of a, a, an intersection of speculators who are there one day and gone the next. Mm. And again, the, the, the conversation is really quite unproductive uh, in that everybody's focused on what's next, what are we getting, what's in it for me. And so I wanted to build a community where the secondary market and prices weren't part of the conversation. And, you know, that instead of, you know, people asking, what am I getting next? What's in it for me? That we could sort of focus on collective contribution and that with everybody's sort of individual expertise and connections and uh, resources that they could sort of uh, help create a community that breeds its own value. So the best description is a curated sort of digital, 
maybe country club, um, but it's to remove all of the things that I think make communities so flimsy, such as a secondary market. And to, to achieve that, you would basically issue the NFTs as soul-bound tokens? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, again, I'm, I've been an advocate of not collecting royalties as a project. I think that most business, uh, you know, projects uh, should not be monetizing in that way for many reasons. And so to practice, you know, what I'm preaching, it, it will be a soul-bound token. So all of the income or revenue that this um, membership generates will be through primary mints, which, you know, I guess you would call that like point of sale revenue. Um, there will be no royalties because it will be untradeable. You can't move it from, you know, wallet to wallet or list it on any marketplace. Um, and there will be no sort of mint day, you know, where everybody sort of is on a list and can jump in. It will be sort of a, a perpetual set of openings, limited every month and, and based on an application. So it's a completely different business model. And this is sort of part of yeah, I'm doing this as an experiment. And, and part of the experiment is to show people that like you can do something different and probably still make it work, whether it works or not, where is yet to be seen, but to challenge the sort of uh, standard template. Is there some sort of application process? So do you vet the people that come in? Yeah. So, you know, curation is important, I think, in communities. I think that's another one of those little potential issues with certain, you know, on a secondary market, anybody can buy in. And I think that that's not always brilliant to preserve kind of the culture and vibe. And that person might be buying in purely to speculate and maybe they don't add an immense amount of value to the to the group or they detract from the group. And mind you, some some people may say that about me as a participant in certain groups, which is fine. But mm -hmm. that, that's the point of curation, right? So for me, yeah, we'll have a uh, an application process um, that we actually built that's fully proprietary. In fact, there's a whole... Um, sort of membership engine that we've built to try and make this as um, uh, seamless and enjoyable as possible. But that application is basically looking to find out more about, you know, what that person enjoys to collect, what they enjoy to talk about and think about, uh, and also what they will be willing to contribute to, you know, the collective, the community. And that's, you know, it could be as little as dialogue and maybe they've got uh, deep expertise in a certain industry or background, and they're willing to contribute that. I mean, I think that's that's fantastic. You know, I've got people who are really um, knowledgeable on certain um, categories of collecting. Some, you know, don't even include NFTs like timepieces or wine. I mean, we're just trying to bring together an awesome group of people with you know, uh, great backgrounds and experiences to have great dialogue and, 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 and sort of creative and thought-provoking conversation. I love that. I'm actually going to scratch my own itch here and ask you a question about what you think about how we're structuring uh, a project that I'm working on. It's called Maya. It's a, it's a members club that will have a speakeasy opening in Q2 of 2023. But the way that we wanted to approach it is we wanted to break the model of like the traditional members clubs like, you know, Soul House or even some members club in London where there is an application process because we wanted to have exclusivity, but also having it be inclusive. So meaning that anybody could get in regardless of their background. How are you thinking about that with like provenance? And this is not to say that one is better than the other, but I'm trying to find like a right middle ground. Well, first of all, I think this is a project decision, right? It's like, uh, how open do you want to be? I mean, how wide of a net do you want to cast? I think there are certain projects that would, you know, hypothetically say, like, we only want developers, okay? And so there's a classification there of, okay, this is the profile and here's who we're accepting. Um, you know, in, in uh, regard to your project, Speakeasy, which I'm, I'm glad there's going to be a, uh, an NFT uh, Speakeasy that actually launches, 
Um, <laughs> you, you, anyway, but um, I, look, I think you want to keep the, the you know the, the door open enough, and so you'll have your own criteria and maybe certain ways. Like maybe it's a referral based thing where you you sort of let in a certain number of people initially, and then it's like, look, you've all got three invitations for some kind of like sub pass. Or I, I'm not sure. I'm sure you've got some thoughts already, but I think it's an individual project decision for me and Providence. I mean, we're going to have a certain number of openings per month. Uh, obviously, we'll accept and reject a certain amount of applications, but you know we will always allow people to reapply and we'll generally try to provide feedback on why we may think somebody is not a fit or not a fit at the time. But you know, uh, expressly, we're trying to keep the conversation at a really high caliber. I agree with you. <laughs> I think and in space, like we need a bit more of that nuanced perspective where each project should decide based on what makes sense for their project and also the business that they're in or actually the type of community they're trying to build. You know, on social media and especially in Web3 space, it's it's easy to get stuck in silos and think in a certain way that like this has to be this way and this founder should do things that way. You know, every project should have this amount of royalties and it should be a 10K collection, like you were saying. I think we can break all of that. Like even that 10K collection uh, or 5K that's a wild number sometimes. And, and you're, you know, you're, you're really realizing in these tough times where you're hitting a bar, bear market where projects barely mint out, you know, or, or like even mint 50% or 40%. Yeah. In a, in a bull market, sure. Everybody mints anything. And, uh, you know, there was that period like a, a year or a year and a half ago where any project that came out uh, instantly minted out. It didn't matter what it was, but now it's a different story. I mean, unless you're someone like Tim Ferriss with cock punch, which, you know, minted out. Aside from that, there are very rare exceptions. What happened early on, I, I think a fair assumption, and this is speaking more to PFPs and less to art, is, you know, with the 10K collections, like you saw, you know, Bored Apes and, you know, Punks. And in particular, in the case of Bored Apes, I mean, for a while, that thing was just a money printer. Like the, the price of the Bored Ape was skyrocketing. And then you got all these airdrops that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, it was craziness. And so, Everybody was kind of, and I literally heard many, many times the, the term, the next BAYC from both founders and collectors. And everybody was just sort of playing this game of darts, trying to find it. And that's why they would mint absolute garbage in pursuit. But um, you're right. Uh, now that we're in a bear market and I think rationality settled in and people are thinking with reason, you're actually going to have to deliver something materially good or better or interesting uh, for people to want to mint. I want to shift gears here and um, talk about centralization versus decentralization. In uh, one of your tweets, you said centralized products and platforms have eroded trust in a decentralized movement. There needs to be a renewed focus on trustless protocols that are open, transparent and secure. And I'm sure this tweet was, um, you know, to give context to the audience, it's probably related to FTX. Uh, with the whole event that happened with this centralized, centralized exchange that is FTX, how do you see centralized exchanges evolving in a space and what regulations do you think will have to be put in place? It's a great question. Um, obviously, in the immediate sort of aftermath of the SBF uh, or FTX implosion, you know, uh, exchanges were rushing to provide proof of reserves, which I think are of limited use, uh, obviously. Um, for, for many reasons. I think fundamentally the issue is around education and that these platforms are willingly, the, the, the correct answer is to use these platforms for transactions 
sort of on an as needed basis, right? So if you need to swap some USD for some ETH, you would make that transaction happen and then both the USD and the ETH would leave the platform. And so you're not meant to be parking funds there. And I think that from a product perspective, there needs to be somebody native to Crypto Web 3 who kind of admits this um, and actually pushes users to, to take the step of, um, you know, self-custody and responsible holding of funds. You know, the, the reason products like Uniswap are so brilliant is there is no, you know, they're not holding onto anything for you. It's a swap that's happening mm. from your wallet um, and they're facilitating that transaction. So I think centralized exchanges are obviously important for, you know, the fiat on off ramp um, for their ability to run sort of limit orders. But um, there's so many elements to it that need to be sort of stripped back and removed. And I hope that that just happens from a product perspective instead of governments having to step in and heavily regulate this stuff because they'll probably take it too far. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there is responsibility on both sides, you know, the, on the side of the centralized exchange, but also on the side of, of the user to, to make the move and actually move those funds or those resources into a decentralized wallet, a self-custody wallet. That's exactly what, I, what I've been doing uh, two years ago when I first got into crypto and I tried to buy Ethereum <laughs> here in Canada. It's trying to buy with like a credit card or anything related to a bank. Any transaction would be declined uh, when, I, when we were using Coinbase. So I had to use something like Binance to actually get it peer to peer. But then from there, I would just move the funds into a MetaMask wallet, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's the way to do it. And again, I, I just hope that these companies kind of make that push. I, I think this is a, there's an opportunity for founders to act in good faith and do what's better for the space and quite frankly, still run a really profitable operation and organization. I think that, you know, people in crypto, especially natively, are like desperate for figures they can trust. I mean, just recently, there's been some scares around, you know, Binance and, and how they're operating. And I think the all of the native crypto users are like, you know, there, there shouldn't be a scare because you shouldn't have funds on the platform. So it would be great to see some native founders take steps to improve the product in a way that secures the customer better. For sure. I wanted to ask you, uh, since you also come from an advertising and marketing background, how do you see prominent brands entering the space and how quickly do you think this will happen? So, you know, brands like Nike, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, those brands have already made some plays in NFTs, but how do you think this will happen? And do you think it will happen in a span of five years or do you think there's a shorter time frame at play here? Yeah, look, I think there's, uh, there's a few ways to answer this and there's a few things going on. There's a couple of brands who are being preemptively active and I think those are, you know, the most notable is probably Nike, right, with their acquisition of Artifact and everything they're doing there. Um, and then you've seen sort of brands do smaller activations, you know, maybe like the Porsche one recently, um, where they're just trying to have some kind of footprint around digital collectibles. And then there's been a ton of trademarks registered for sort of just digital parts and components for many other brands. So I think everybody is being preemptively active and taking some level of action. I think that a lot of these brands don't even know what they're building for. Um, I think they, they, they have an expectation that there'll be some kind of metaverse or maybe multiple metaverses, and they just want to exist. Um, so at the time that one you know, becomes more prominent or you know, another is taking off, that they've got assets and the capability to be there. I think the most obvious activation is really going to be close enough to zero cost NFTs that unlock a small amount of utility. A great example is going to be the Starbucks, you know, loyalty program, I think it's called Odyssey um, mm. on, on, on Polygon. 
And, you know, I'm starting to view like a person's wallet is almost like their fridge. And so if you can get uh, an NFT that looks pretty good and offers some small amount of utility, you've kind of got a magnet on the fridge. And so there's some sort of mind share uh, and potential retention and loyalty benefits that a brand can harness there. Some of the work we're doing with clients is seeing how we can incentivize checkout, you know, speaking to e-commerce using NFT. So getting people to spend more to claim one and then you know, perhaps becoming a recurring customer because they have this NFT in their wallet and it unlocks some kind of um, you know, benefit for them. And, and again, the mind share of just having that present in their wallet. And again, these, these are effectively free from brands to have you know, that presence in a, a consumer's wallet. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's just how much of a deep connection you can build with them. And I love what um, I was recently at Art Basel in Miami and got to see in, in person and, and see people minting those uh, 90cc shirts by G Money. And it's just fascinating to see how NFC chips can actually like at least foster some sort of like um, interaction with collecting NFTs or PO apps. I think PO apps are, have not even been like, there's a lot of potential there that I don't think has been fully explored. I think there's a lot of opportunity for brands to to use them. Um, I'm not a major fan of scanning people's waste, but I can definitely see a place where, you know, a brand opens a new store or if you check in, you know, and collect a certain amount of POAPs at a certain location or you, you visit every location in a certain state. I mean, you could gamify it in a way that only really native projects have. Uh, that I think would be enormously beneficial and drive a lot of sort of KPIs for these brands uh, that would be quite profitable. Are you familiar with how POAP actually works? Because in in my mind, when I when I first got into the space, I thought like a POAP was it's a proof of attendance protocol, but I thought that was like part of like the blockchain and whatnot. And then I realized that oh no, POAP is actually a company, and somebody started this. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's like possibilities of having other competitors coming in and, and basically delivering the same um, value. What POAP did um, in sort of coining that term or title was was brilliant, right? Because now, you know, if you said like anything else, like if you said attendance token or I don't know, whatever, whatever other word people say, well, you mean like a POAP? And so they've like got mindshare monopoly on that, which I think is clever. Well, I think there'll be other ones. I think there certainly will be. I'm not sure how they're going to go with naming it. Maybe somebody acquires that platform. There definitely needs to be competitors. And I think brands will probably create their own sort of internal or proprietary systems to do the same thing. Because I think the tech there of rewarding or or recognizing somebody making a stop and making it sort of psychologically worthwhile for them or gamifying it in a way, again, can drive a lot of key business objectives. But I'm sure we'll see competitors, but Pipe has done a great job in sort of coining and making that term relevant. I think even social media platforms, like more uh, Web2 centric platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whichever, like I, I think that's going to be a powerful tool of signaling where you were. When, when I think about POAPs, like for example, the Twitter spaces that issue POAPs, like uh, what Ryan Carson is doing, you're essentially showing that, hey, you were there in the early days, you were there for this specific event. Yeah. I mean, I've heard some interesting applications like, you know, uh, really expensive, you know, whatever restaurants or something like that. And if you were to dine there, you would get some kind of token to represent that. You know, I'm not sure where, you know, all of these tokens will eventually be displayed or how somebody would or you know, maybe somebody, you know, develops a product that allows people to sort of show their collective POAPs or, you know, IRL activation tokens. But, um, you know, I, I think a large portion of the market would love to collect them. 
And I'm sure, as you say, there's some status associated with certain tokens. I'm sure like Facebook or Instagram is probably going to develop something like that because I can't believe these platforms that everything is so much about showing where you went uh, to eat, where you went in terms of, uh, you know, a vacation and whatnot. I could definitely see just a banner at the top of your Instagram profile where it's just like showcasing your pro apps. I was here not long ago. So whenever somebody like adds you on Instagram or they could right away see what you're all about. Oh, you went to that concert? Oh shit, I was there too. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And I, and I think you're right. I mean, you know, with uh, Instagram, you know, really working now with Polygon and doing their NFT mints and the way they're sort of allowing people to display collectibles or I'm not sure if that's live yet or not, but it's clear that they're at least recognizing it. And yeah, I think Pi-Ups are the next, uh, the next play. It is live. And I believe they, from what they, they talked about and the information that they gave out is that they would keep it free for like a year or something. And then afterwards, I think they're going to tax it pretty much like what Apple wants to do, um, putting a tax on any uh, transactions that happen through uh, App Store. Are you familiar with the, the tax that Apple wants to put on NFTs and crypto? Yeah, it's silly, right? They want to, I think part of their statement was they want to be able to even tax the gas fees that are, you know, applied, which is just <laughs> silly. But um, yeah, look, I mean, I don't have an issue with, you know, if they, if they want to charge some kind of marketplace fee for facilitating a transaction, I mean, it's what OpenSea does. The difference is that, you know, they're like five times more expensive. So I think what they have to sort of be reasonable about is what that percentage is. But to charge for a marketplace is is standard practice. But yeah, I think that, you know, Apple and there's been news that came out, I think, in the last 24 hours that Apple will accept or, or be allowing uh, additional marketplaces that aren't just Apple's App Store. And so to avoid that happening to platforms like Instagram, I think the simple answer is to make the to make the fee palatable uh, to the extent that it's not worth um, somebody building a competing product or some kind of workaround. Before I ask my final question, I, I have one more topic I wanted to elaborate on, and that's Twitter, because uh, we're talking about social platforms. Uh, so uh, at this time, Elon has bought Twitter. He is making some changes on the platform and you have tweeted uh, about that, like for example, his verification system, uh, the fact that, uh, <laughs> you know, you said Elon shipped a broken verification system and I love it. We'll see good and bad updates from Twitter, but at least we'll have a regular cadence and that'll keep us entertained. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, and then what would you see happening in the future with this platform? Look, I, and, and maybe this is personal preference or personal bias, uh, love when people iterate as they go. I mean, Twitter works, okay? So Twitter is already a functional product and there's millions and millions of people using it. Um, and so, you know, within reason, it's totally uh, okay for him to sort of ship experiments and iterations. And I mean, you know, Twitter had this like experimental, I think they called it Twitter Labs, where they were testing things. But what they were testing were just extremely unremarkable. I mean, it was like 1080p video was like a test. It's like, that's, that's like, should be already on the platform. So, and, and, you know, these tests that were completely, were, were nothing special were happening like every six months. And so it, it was just a stale, large company. And now you've got Elon who, you know, despite the scale of all of his ventures acts like a startup. They're very nimble. They, they iterate on the fly. And I think that's fun for customers. Um, you know, the fact that an update can randomly come and, and with such cadence, there's always something to look forward to. And so there's almost a, a second layer of incentive of participating 
on the product. And I think one great example of that that nobody can deny is that as Twitter acquires, uh, sorry, Elon acquires Twitter and starts causing a ton of drama through his own tweets, um, you know, that the, the monthly active user count kept breaking records. Like people just wanted to see what was going to happen. So um, I think mm -hmm. it's great that they're iterating actively, making changes quickly uh, and improving the product. But I think that that's also strategically beneficial because people want to be part of, you know, what's next. Yeah, I think it's also setting as an example for what founders should be doing. Like he's really keeping an ear on the ground and actually interacting with, uh, I mean, uh, obviously the Twitter community is pretty big, but you know, you're actually engaging with the community and seeing what type of feedback you're getting, even though you can't necessarily, it's not humanly possible to read through like hundreds of thousands of comments, but at least you're seeing the overall sentiment. And that's what I love about what Elon is doing. And perhaps that's what I love about Web3. I, I love these, this idea of iterating quickly, trying stuff. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. A lot of times we, we get so stuck in trying to make it perfect before we ship a product. But uh, there's this saying that says, you know, what is it like done is better than perfect or something like that? Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think that, you know, we, especially as founders, like you can live in this echo chamber of thinking what the product feels like or how great it is or that you've covered all the bases, but it's it's the market that will tell you whether it is or is not great. And, and it's the market will help you with that process of iteration. And, and Elon is a pro at that. He ships things that are 80% complete because he knows the market will actually answer all the questions and give him way better and more important data. So um, yeah, trying to you know, perfect things internally is never a productive task. On that note about shipping products and, and uh, shipping projects, when can we expect Provenance to, uh, to launch and what should we be on the lookout for? You know, Provenance was meant to be something that, you know, I launched probably three months ago. And my concern was I didn't want to just launch another Discord. And even though I'm sort of, there is no roadmap and I'm setting no expectations, I did want it to feel a little bit special. And so that's why I went and started building out some proprietary tooling and software. You know, my expectation is to have it uh, in action late this month. Yeah, we're pretty much 99% uh, of the way there. We're just sort of checking through everything, making sure we're happy with it. But uh, yeah, it'll be a December launch. Uh, everybody who's been you know uh, waiting, I apologize. But I'm um, certainly just following the Providence Twitter, which is at Meet Providence. Uh, all of the important updates will be there, but uh, certainly excited to finally get this out there. Amazing. And also make sure to follow Dollar, your at Dollar on every social platform. I wish, I, I wish. I'm at known <laughs> as Dollar on, uh, on Twitter known as Dollar. Okay, awesome. Well, Dollar, it's been a pleasure chatting with you um, and actually connecting uh, for the first time really via voice. I look forward to, to meeting you in person at some point at some conference, if you, if you undox yourself, or at least um, <laughs> if I can join the provenance. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly possible. Martin, I, I appreciate you uh, having me on. It's been a great conversation today and uh, maybe we'll do it another time soon. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or any other platform you're listening on. Your feedback is always super helpful. So if you could take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And until next time.